Okay, so we're, we're talking about sinful anger. Brother Andrew um, went through the Beatitudes and, and um, was laying out this big picture um, of what kingdom living um, looks like. And, and the, the way that he laid that out in a pyramid was just was great. Um, what I'm going to do is, is exactly what he said. I'm going to take a little, little tiny slice of how this applies to your day-to-day life, your, your day-to-day um, living. And so let's look in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21, it says, You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Rekha, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee. Leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled with thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly while thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. Now, the reason I, I, I read through there is because that's the section, but I, I want to make sure that we understand when we're talking about anger, and this is where Jesus roots anger, and the destructiveness of anger is that we're not just talking about your personal character deficiency. Uh, anyone who's interested in living a, a life that is um, in the kingdom is someone who's going to have to learn how to live in relationships with other people. And one of the reasons why we must get a handle on sinful anger if we would live in God's kingdom and we would be productive citizens in God's kingdom, is because sinful anger will destroy your relationships. As a matter of fact, when you look in Ephesians 4, and we get the command, and, and, and I'll reference it later in the, uh, in the slides, but the command to, to be angry and, and sin not, not to let uh, the sun go down upon our wrath, lest we give Satan a foothold, that whole context there, Ephesians 1 and 2, Paul is talking about the first half of chapter 2. He's talking about the fact that we've been united to Jesus Christ in this miraculous way. And so if you've been saved, you've been joined to Him. And then about the last half of chapter 2 into chapter 3, there's this mysterious work that these these people who have been united to Christ have also been united to one another and they are coming to God in one body through Christ. And the, the, the unity, the, the, the union that we have with Christ and that's being played out with our union with one another is really the, 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 the two major themes in the first half of the book of Ephesians. Then when he gets to Ephesians chapter 4 and he starts talking about this anger and giving Satan a foothold and those kinds of things... Really, the picture is this. The Holy Spirit is at work right now seeking to build up the body, 
seeking to build the unity in the body. And when you allow sinful anger to begin to dominate your life and permeate your relationships, you are tearing down what the Spirit is seeking to build up. So you get the picture there? It's not just, I'll find another friend. We're talking about big, big consequences here. So, sinful anger. What I want to do is, is give some descriptions of it, um, talk about some of the key categories in Scripture. I mean, there's a lot we could say about this that we want today. And then when we get to the end, I want to hopefully try to give you some helpful biblical strategies in, um, in fighting anger. Uh, just so we can level the playing field here, I am in a room full of angry people, whether you know it or not. Okay? You're an angry person. And the only way you can not be an angry person is if you're an individual who absolutely cares about nothing. And that doesn't exist if you're alive. Okay? If you're alive, then you have a heart, and that heart is wanting, desiring, valuing, pursuing. And then when you, get, you hit the roadblocks of any of those things you're tempted to, to, to become angry. So what is anger? I'm going to give you a definition here that may seem uh, a bit unhelpful at first, but we're going to break it down, and it's, uh, it's extremely helpful in our clarity. It's by a guy named Robert Jones. comes out of his book, Uprooting Anger. And he says, anger is a whole person response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil. Now, if you're looking at that thinking... Brother Lewis, I'm 12. <laughs> Just hang on. Okay? We're going to break it down into three sections. But, but understanding these three are going to be helpful in the, way you think about, um, in the way you think about anger. So it's a whole person response. Here's what I mean, or here's what he means. It affects your body, your mind, and your soul, if we could just say it that way. So in other words, you don't just get angry in your thoughts. Your blood pressure can, can begin to, to go up. You have bodily uh, responses to your anger. Anger can affect the way you're thinking. It most assuredly does affect the way you're thinking. It affects the way you're feeling. It affects the way you're acting. It affects everything about you. Now, the second one is also important. Anger is a response to something or someone. Now, here's why this is important. Because if anger is a response, it means that anger is not something we get, and it's not something we are, it's something that we do. Okay, sometimes we talk about getting angry the same way you would talk about catching a cold or something like that. doesn't work that way. You don't catch anger. You actively move into anger. It's something that you are doing, and sometimes it happens so fast that you miss it. Okay, a negative moral judgment, this whole-bodied negative moral judgment. Okay, it's something that you're active in, and this one's going to hurt your feelings a little bit, but you cannot become angry without judging or being judgmental. Don't you just hate judgmental folks? Okay, and then now you've got to hate the fact that you're one of them. Okay, if you are angry, you are actively being judgmental towards something. Now, your judgment may be correct, but it may not be. 
But the point is, your anger doesn't just come, you know, out of nowhere. Your anger comes through a, um, a process of you judging something. All right. And then it's a negative moral judgment against perceived evil. Okay, so this judgment arises from our perception, whether it's accurate or inaccurate, of evil. So you, sometimes I'm sure you've thought, man, that person gets angry over the most ridiculous things. I don't understand that. And there are times probably where people thought the same thing about you. But it's this whole-bodied response of a negative moral judgment against perceived evil. Let me, let me illustrate that for you. Okay, here's an example. Now, this is from some of the riots recently uh, in our nation. If, if you don't think our nation has a problem with anger, you don't have a TV or you've, you haven't watched the news lately. Um, here's one example. This was in response to um, the, the death of George Floyd. And so this is my purpose is here is not to give a news commentary on that. But this particular act... It's something we're going to look at. This is a whole person response, okay? This woman's emotions, her thoughts, her actions, they are all at play. She's angry right now against a negative moral judgment. Systemic racism is wrong, and it is wrong, okay? So it's something that she's upset about against perceived evil. What she didn't realize was in her anger over systemic racism, she is um, vandalizing a statue of a man who was an early abolitionist who fought against slavery 30 years before it ended. Okay? In her mind, this was, this was a legitimate expression. Now let me give you a little secret about anger. It draws your stupid out real quick. Okay? Okay, now as we look at this, you know, we can, we can look and think, man, you know, I bet she feels dumb. And probably she did. But you've been there too. Okay? You've been there too. We have these perceptions and, and um, man, we could just get carried away. All right, different expressions of anger. Different expressions of anger. This is an important one for you to realize because sometimes anger can fly under the radar and you think just based on your expression or maybe even your personality that you're not much of an angry person. The first one is cold anger. A lot of times when you think about anger, you may just think about um, you know, somebody blowing up or somebody fussing and cussing or somebody doing that sort of a thing. But, but anger comes in a couple of, different, couple of different forms. These are the two basic categories, cold anger sulking, pouting, what are all these parents doing shaking their heads? Withdrawing relationally, right? So you could be in the same room with somebody, but you've just kind of withdrawn. You, you've got nothing to say. They ask you if you're doing okay, and you say, yeah, yeah, I'm doing okay. Retreating physically, you get upset. Maybe you leave the room. Maybe you leave the house. Given the cold shoulder, okay? I want you to listen. If you've never thought about this, you should think about it. Cold anger is just as sinful as hot anger, which is the next thing we're going to look at. 
So if you have it in your mind, I'm not much of an angry person because I never fuss and I never cuss and I never shout and I never get loud, but you turn into a pouting toddler when you don't get your way. And here's, here's the, here really is the hinge. If your behavior becomes destructive toward your relationships, then you are engaging in sinful anger, if we're talking about these kinds of things. Okay, hot anger. This is the one you'd probably be more familiar with. Yelling and screaming, throwing, kicking, hitting, talking back, sarcasm, name-calling, profanity. Now, sometimes, especially with young men, um, hot anger can sometimes be a bit of a badge of honor. You can think, man, you know, nobody's going to mess with me. They know better. There's no telling what I'll say, do, or whatever else. Um, and the thing about hot anger is that it might look cool when you're 17, but it looks like a restraining order when you're 27. Okay, And you're laughing, but it does. It, it looks like a track record of broken relationships when you're 27. Uh, it looks like um, a very lonely, um, destructive life, okay? So it loses its cool factor pretty quick. Okay, why do we get angry? Why do we get angry? Look at James. You already know the answer to this because you can see the picture, but we're going to camp out in James for just a minute. James chapter 4, verse 1, it says, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lust that war in your members? You lust and have not, you kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. So just in plain language, why do we get angry? Okay, if we take James Four and really chapter uh, verse 2 is a pretty good model, but in short, the reason you get angry is because you want something, you can't have it, and so you decide to destroy something. James says in verse 2, you lust, okay, that's the word for want. You have not, which means I want something that I can't get. And then, and then after that, the result is that since you can't obtain, you murder you fight, you war. And so this is the way anger works. Um, you want, you can't, you destroy. As far as the progression goes, that's not that complicated, is it? You know, sometimes we think, you know, I'm just a deep person. You just wouldn't understand. I'm not saying there aren't struggles that sometimes have a little bit of depth to it. But most of the time, this sort of an angry character development is not that deep. I want something, and you're in my way of getting that. It can also sound like this. 
I love me and have a wonderful plan for my life, and you're not cooperating, and so I'm going to do whatever I need to do to get you on board, whether that is give you the cold shoulder, whether that is pout, whether that is yell, scream, kick, fuss, cuss, whatever else. Okay, that's the way anger works. Okay, is anger always wrong? This is a real question, so if you know it, if you're not an adult, but if you, if you know it, then you can answer it. Can anybody tell me who the angriest person in the Bible is? Anybody? It's okay if you're wrong. We're not going to shoot you. God. Do you know that? Do you know God is the angriest person in Scripture? If you were to go through it and look at all the references to wrath and anger and all the synonyms for anger... That the, that the angriest person in Scripture is by far, there's not even a close second, by far God. Psalm 7:11. God is angry with the wicked every day. So, of course, our answer is no. Anger is not always wrong. The Bible gives us a category for righteous anger. We mentioned this earlier, Ephesians 4, 26, be angry and sin not. So the possibility there that you could become angry, that you could have a whole person response of a negative moral judgment against perceived evil without moving into a sinful reaction, that's a, that's a real category. Well, what's the difference? How do you know? Well, righteous anger is motivated by concern for God's glory and is expressed in a way that's consistent with God's Word. So you're probably not going to have righteous anger over losing the basketball game this afternoon. God's glory was not involved in your team winning. Okay, It's not tied to that. But the other part of it is this. You may, you may see someone, you know, Brother Mike, this is, this is not going to happen if you're new, so don't get worried. This is just a hypothetical. You may see someone here who's here for the first time, and, and you may see somebody just treating them in a way that's not very um, inviting, not very loving. Matter of fact, you may see somebody treating them in a way that's just flat-out rude. And so you, the righteous person that you are, may decide to march over there and just give them what for. And I mean just tear them to pieces. Well, you were upset about the right thing, but you handled it the wrong way. You see what I'm saying? You did the same thing to them that they were doing to the other person, except you feel better about yourself for doing it. Okay, That's not righteous anger. Righteous anger is being upset or concerned about the right thing and then responding in the right way. Sinful anger is motivated by a concern for what you think is right, and I put that in quotations because it may be right, it may not be, and it is expressed in a way that's consistent with how you feel in the moment. That's why anger has a um, pretty consistent track record of drawing out the stupid that's in me and in you. Because you're going to do and you're going to say whatever you're thinking at the moment that you become upset. And I don't know if you figured this out or not, but you being engulfed in anger is not your most rational moment. So here's the, here's the question. We'll move through the rest of it this way. How do we deal with sinful anger? How do we deal with it? Well, 
The first thing I want to talk about is, is interrupting the progression. Interrupting the progression. You guys like that inner piece? You guys, Kung Fu Panda? Um, interrupting the progression. Remember we said the progression of anger is I want. What's the second one? I can't. And then the third is I destroy. We want to interrupt the progression of I want, I can't, and I trust. You know, you live in a world where you will never ever can be, to be able to consistently get what you want. That's just part of a fallen world. We live in a world where sometimes that's due to sin, sometimes that's just due to preference. You know, Isaiah 26, 3 that will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed upon thee, because he trusts in thee. When we find ourselves engulfed in and, 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 and being um, enslaved to sinful anger, there may be a lot of things going on, but one thing that is certainly not going on is that we are turning to Christ in faith and in trust trusting that he is doing what is right and what is good. And that might not seem like it fits here, but hopefully as we go on, you'll understand it. So 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Starting in verse 19. It says, for this is, a, a thank, this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. Now, before I, I do anything else, you have your whole person negative moral judgment right there. How many times have you been mad and somebody said, what happened? And you said, well, it was completely fair. It was completely fair. I've just got to admit that on the front end. I didn't like it, but I deserved it. It was fair. That's probably never happened, has it? This is the scenario that we see right here in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19. He says, this is thankworthy, or this is acceptable, if a man for conscience toward God endure just unfair treatment really is what it's describing there, grief, suffering, wrongfully. For what glory is it if when you be buffeted for your faults you shall take it patiently, but if when you do well and suffer for it you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but he committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. That verse 23 where it says he committed himself, the word there is he entrusted himself. He put himself into the arms of the Father and trusted the Father to do what was right. So here's, here's what we see in this passage. Number one, Christ was more concerned about receiving his AUG than he was being treated fairly. Anybody here know what AUG stands for? Any Jim Elliott people? Approved unto God. Approved unto God. 
he was, and, and we get that from verse 19. This is a thankworthy or this is an acceptable and approved thing. God approves this when you endure patiently as you're receiving unfair treatment. Brothers and sisters, I would, I would say this, as we get into the, um, the other slides and we're looking at different strategies for dealing with anger, if you're not interested in living a life that pleases God, none of the other stuff's going to work. Okay, if you're not motivated to honor Jesus Christ with your life and in your relationships, who do you think you're, you're going to default to uh, exalting above all? Well, it's going to be you. It's going to be you. You're either worshiping God or you're wondering why people aren't worshiping you. That's the way that goes. And so if this approved unto God is not where you start, uh, the rest of it's not really going to have a lasting effect. Verse 21 says that Jesus Christ himself gave us an example to follow. He did not retaliate. He didn't retaliate whenever he was sinned against. He committed himself. He entrusted himself to God. Now this may seem like that makes for a good sermon outline, but it wouldn't really work. But brothers and sisters, I'll tell you, it does work. If you have set and fixed your mind on who God is and what it is that God is doing in you and through you in the trials and the difficulties and the unfair treatments and as He's called you to be a light in a dark world, if you, when you're able to just put yourself in His arms, as it were, Say, you know what, I don't like this. This is not what I would prefer. This is not what I would have chosen. But I'm more worried about God's approval than the approval about everybody than the approval of everybody else around me. And that really is that we said it already, but that really is the thing. Let's say that we're we're eating lunch. Let's say that you're eating lunch and the uh, conversation's going well. You're surrounded by your friends and somebody walks up to the table and they sit down and they throw out this outlandish insult at you that everybody else thinks is funny and they begin to laugh. And you begin to get angry. And more than likely, your anger is a whole lot more about the corporate laughter than it is about the insult that was thrown out. And the reason for that is, by default, we all want to be approved unto man, don't we? We care about what other people think. And so if that's the case, then I'm going to be tempted to retaliate in such a way that I can get the same kind of laughter, hopefully even more laughter, as I insult you for insulting me. And it turns into a a cycle. But if the same scenario happens and I am seeking above all else to please Christ, then I'm going to have some kind of a footing to move forward without responding in a sinful way. Jesus trusted God to do what was right in the scenario that we're talking about in uh, 1 Peter 2. So, entrusting yourself to the Lord... Okay, now, here's some, here's some specifics. What exactly are you supposed to trust? Well, one thing that you can trust out of Romans chapter 12, and I'm not going to turn here for time's sake, but 
Uh, and, and as we get through here, these are pretty busy with words. I'm going to give you my email address at the end. If you're taking notes and you miss something or you just want to stop taking notes and listen, you can get the PowerPoint. In Romans chapter 12, uh, we're told that vengeance belongs to God. So someone treats you in an unfair way, you're mistreated, you're, you're, you're um, uh, uh, treated in a way that just um, draws a response out of you and you're trying to exercise self-control. Vengeance belongs to God. So if I believe this, if I'm trusting this, then I will not respond to evil with evil. Did you know in this sort of a scenario, every time you respond in a sinful way against your fellow man, you're also responding in a sinful way against God? You know, you can't sin against someone else without sinning against God at the same time. That's the way that works. If I believe that vengeance belongs to God out of verse 18, I'm going to do everything within my power, everything within my control to be at peace with all people. The peacemaker that Brother Andrew talked about earlier. Someone who is, who is seeking to be at peace, and, and whether we're talking about a mediator or not. Obviously here we're talking about just your relationships. You know, there's some things that just aren't worth fussing and fighting over. Some things that just aren't worth being angry over. And a big category for that is preferences. You know, a lot of times we, have, we, we let our preferences just get out of control. If it's not a sin issue, you ought to be able to overlook it and move on. If it's not a sin issue, you ought to be able to defer to the other person. And then, if we believe that vengeance belongs to God, we will seek to overcome evil with good. All that means is when someone who does evil toward us is in some sort of a scenario where it's within our power to do good to them, we're not going to withhold that. We're going to seek to, to, to move toward them as much as we can. Now, we can't control the other person, and we may not be able to move very close, but we're at least going to refrain from evil. All right, what else are you going to trust? Well, another thing you can trust is that your anger will never produce a result that pleases God. James 1, 19 through 20. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. No matter how it turns out, if you allow sinful anger to, um, uh, to uh, be your response, whether that is sulking and pouting or whether that is, you know, fussing and cussing, either way, that will not produce a result that pleases the Lord. Why? Because God is far more concerned with your relationships than He is your preferences. Okay? If I trust that James 1.20 is true, then I'm going to work to implement verse 19, which means I need to slow down. I need to be slow to speak. Okay? Slow down. Focus my efforts on understanding the person and the situation. You ever been in a conversation with somebody that you were already mad at and by the time they got two words out of their mouth you already had your answer? Has that ever happened? It has. Okay. We've got to slow down. We've got to seek to understand. We cannot make rash responses if we're seeking to please the Lord. We need to be very careful about what thoughts actually get put into words. Okay, this is called self-control. You know, you don't have to say everything you think. 
Sometimes people say, well, I'll tell you one thing about me is I'm not a hypocrite. Well, the default is you're a dummy. Okay? So it's better, you know, that it's not a hypocrite to not say what you're thinking. That's called someone who is exercising self-control, using wisdom and discernment, knowing that everything that passes through their brain doesn't need to come out of their mouth. You've got to be careful about that. And then this is what we said here. You need to exercise self-control. So part of, part of it is, is slowing down the process. You see the process here of, of Incredible Hulk. He goes from happy to annoyed, and, and then he stays annoyed for a little bit, and then he just gets frustrated, and, and his frustration turns to anger, and his anger turns to being furious. Um, by the way, all those are levels of intensity, but sometimes we can sugarcoat anger and call it things that sound, you know, a little more dignified than what it really is. You realize frustration is just another name for sinful anger. When you say, I'm irritable, you're, you're, you're just talking about being sinfully angry. Okay? These, the, the words that try to take the sting out of it make it sound a little more dignified. Biblically speaking, there's not a passage that says, be irritable and sin not. That's anger. Be frustrated and sin not. None, that, that falls under the category of anger. So that being said, as we're seeking to um, slow the progression, okay, anger usually anger usually is something that happens very, very quickly. Okay? That's why. Um, we talk about it like, well, I just got angry, or I was just overcome with anger, and those kinds of things. It's, if you're thinking about a, a movie, anger happens in fast-forward mode. Before you know it, it's there. But in reality, if we're thinking about a movie, if we were to slow it down and take it um, scene by scene, okay, clip by clip, Anger has a pretty consistent progression. What if when you were happy and you moved to being annoyed, okay, this is a little lower level intensity, what if you could, what if you could stop your anger, what if you could control it and end it at being annoyed rather than being furious? Or what if you found yourself getting frustrated and you could detect that, okay, I'm frustrated, I need to slow down a little bit, I need to, I need to uh, make sure that I'm, I'm, I'm not quick to speak, I don't need to uh, uh, let all my thoughts come out of my mouth, and so forth and so on. Slowing down this progression, Proverbs chapter 25, Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28, He that has no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. Proverbs 25, 28 is talking about exercising self-control. It's talking about when you recognize that you are moving in a particular direction, that you, the, the scripture, the KJV calls it temperance, if you're trying to do a word study on that but it's you controlling through the power of the Spirit and informed by the Word, 
It's you controlling your responses of anger and really anything else. Proverbs 16.32 says it this way. Proverbs 16.32, He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. Okay? Ruling your spirit, that's talking about self-control. He's saying the person who can rule their spirit is better than the one man who could go in and take an entire city. That's a pretty incredible statement, isn't it? Okay, 2 Peter 1.6 talks about temperance or self-control. It says you ought to add to your knowledge temperance, self-control. And I put this note in there. If a believer thinks that their anger or anything else is too strong to control, then there is a deficiency in your knowledge. That comes from the text there. What do I mean by that? Well, if you think that there is a sin that you're struggling with that is too much for you to control if you're a believer, you need to, to make a beeline to Romans 6 and you need to be reminded that you are no longer a slave to sin. That you do not have to let sin reign over your mortal body. That you can fight. Now, that being said, self-control is not like a, a computer update where somehow or another you just get uh, instantaneous results. It's something that you have to be in the fight on. It's something that you have to be engaged and struggle through. Brothers and sisters, this is something you've got to do. You put in the effort here. And you do it because Jesus Christ has given you His Spirit and He's given you His Word. And according to uh, 2 Peter 1, you've been given everything you need for life and godliness. And so in faith, you're going to walk in that. So let's talk a minute. This is going to be our last thing that we do, but... Let's talk for a minute about a, a practical scenario here. How it is that we take thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. Have you ever heard of that out of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 3 through 6? This is, a, this is a, really a spiritual warfare strategy that Paul is laying out. And he talks about us taking our thoughts captive. Um, now, if, if anger is a product of our thoughts, and it is more than that, but the thoughts are, are related, then it's going to be very helpful if we know how to take these thoughts captive. So let's, let's just go through a list of questions and play out a scenario here. Now, as I'm, as I'm showing you this, I'm showing you this because this is something that you could do. Matter of fact, I would say this is something you should do if, um, if you find yourself habitually responding in sinful anger to be able to slow down the movie reel and look clip by clip by clip by clip. And before long, you'll really, you'll made the habit to where you can think through this without slowing down as much. But what happened? What's the scenario? Anger doesn't happen in a vacuum. What, what was going on that made you angry? Well, my parents corrected me. They corrected my attitude. They corrected my behavior. They've addressed this thing that they say is a habit, right? I, I don't see it, but, but they're correcting me, and I'm, I'm upset about it. Okay, when that happens, what am I, 
wanting, what am I thinking, and what am I feeling? And what happens in this scenario? Well, I'm thinking, why can't they just leave me alone? You know, I wish they'd just mind their own business. And it makes me angry whenever they bring these corrections. Number three. Okay, so now that I know what's happened, I've slowed down enough to process that. And then I've also slowed down enough to kind of realize, okay, what are the thoughts that are going through my head? What is it that I'm thinking, feeling, uh, wanting out of this? Now the next question is, we're taking thoughts captive to the obedience of who? Christ. So, so it's not, I'm taking my thoughts captive to the obedience of Lewis. I'm taking my thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. What's going to be necessary in order for me to take my thoughts captive under the obedience of Christ? What's necessary? Yeah, Scripture. So this is not a solo activity. Okay? It's not you going off to meditate. It's you seeking to apply the Word specifically to your specific struggle. So what does God say about this scenario? My parents just corrected me, and I'm upset about it. Well, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, parents are instructed not to provoke their children to wrath, and then they're instructed to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Nurture and admonition, the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so you're thinking, well, they corrected me. Does that fall into either of those two categories of discipline or instruction? I know, you don't want to answer that right now. Proverbs 29, Proverbs 29, verse 17, correct thy son and he shall give thee rest, yea, he shall give delight unto thy soul. So Proverbs 29, 17 this is inspired by God to us, and God tells parents to do what? Correct your son or your daughter. All right? Now, remember what I was mad about to begin with? My unreasonable parents keep correcting me. Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3. Verse 12, for whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father the son in whom he delights. Okay, not only does God call my parents to correct me, but then he says of himself that if he loves someone, he corrects that person. Okay, you see why it's so important that we make sure that Scripture is a part of how we're thinking through all of this because we would never come to any of these conclusions on our own. But, so I know what's happened. I know what my response has been. Now that I've looked to see what Scripture has to say about it, I want to see what does Scripture have to say not just about what my parents' responsibilities are, but what does Scripture say about the way I'm currently responding to this? 
Now, I'm going to tell you again, if you're not interested in being approved unto God, you'll never do this. You'll never take the time to do this. Proverbs 15, 5. A fool despiseth his father's instruction, but he that regardeth reproof or correction is prudent. Okay. Remember, we're taking thoughts captive. Originally, my, my response was, why do my parents have to stay in my business? I wish they would just leave me alone. It makes me angry when they correct me. And then I'm, I'm starting to see these scriptures that, well, they're correcting me because God has called them to correct me. And, and this is something that is good. And, and then I'm thinking about my response. And I want to see what God thinks about that. And God just pulled out the fool card on me. And, and now I'm feeling kind of silly. Well, how should you be thinking now? What you want to be asking yourself. Since Scripture says a fool despises instruction, then how should I be thinking about this? Well, you should be thinking. If you're, if you're motivated by being approved unto God or honoring God, you should be thinking, I am thankful to have parents who desire to honor the Lord and who love me enough to instruct and correct me when, I, when that's needed. That's what you should be thinking. Now, remember, we started out with, I wish they'd stay out of my business. If we're interested in what Scripture says, we're arriving at, I'm thankful that they're in my business. And if Scripture begins to bring conviction about this point in the process, you're probably looking like this. Okay? <laughs> you're realizing that your, 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 your bold assessment, that uh, your perception that stirred your, your initial anger and the thoughts that you were having that were so crystal clear and made so much sense at the time have absolutely no basis in Scripture at all. And so the conviction kind of hurts a little but you're still not done. What do you do with this renewed thought? What do you do once you've come to these conclusions? And by the way, you may think, Brother Lewis, I am not a preacher. There is no way that I'm going to be able to go through and find all these passages about all these things. Well, let me give you a very effective and a very easy way to do this. If you find yourself upset about something or you find a topic in this sort of an area that you want to, you want to learn about, start in Proverbs chapter 9. And you do a topic study in Proverbs chapter 9. Every time, I'm sorry, Proverbs chapter 9 all the way through the end of the book. Every time you see something that comes up about anger, if you just did a Bible study in Proverbs on anger, you'd have a verse list this long. You could pick anything else and go through Proverbs and you could have a pretty good verse list so that whenever you began to struggle with something and you were trying to take your thoughts captive, you could have a handful of verses out of Proverbs that would get you headed in the right direction would help bring wisdom where we're currently foolish. So what do we do with this renewed thought? Well, just having it is not enough. Okay? Toward God, we confess our sinful response. We repent, we ask for forgiveness, we thank Him for giving us parents who love us enough to correct us when that's needed. Don't forget, we're talking about a sin here. Okay? The scenario we were started with, that's a sinful response to being corrected. So we confess it to God. Secondly, you're going to confess it to your parents. You're going to repent. You're going to ask for forgiveness. 
Now, I'll tell you, it's humiliating to do that. And sometimes that's going to be enough motivation for you to slow down and think before you speak the next time. But this is what God requires. We confess our sin, we, we repent, we ask for forgiveness, and then we thank them for loving God and loving us enough to correct us when needed. So the six questions there, you can go through with any scenario, and you can do this. I told you at the beginning, this is the, my email address. If you want the PowerPoint, uh, just email me, give me a few days, and I'll be happy to send it to you. Sinful anger. You cannot be a productive citizen in the kingdom if you don't know how to respond well to your anger. 